You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to Seymour Mace, who has been described variously as uh, a purveyor of dark whimsy, uh, as a a clown, uh, definitely a comic, a former street performer. I was actually recommended uh, I interview him, seeing as he seemed to fall into the, the Venn diagram of things that I like. Um, and of course, uh, he also uh, was nominated this year, or the year just gone, um, for a comedy award at the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, Seymour is an absolutely fascinating man. He's a very, very funny performer. Um, and I think a lot of people on the British comedy circuit were so proud and happy to see him finally get the recognition that we all felt he deserved. Um, and uh, this is a very candid interview. We talk a lot about uh, Seymour's depression and uh, some of my own mental health issues as well. Um, I think there's lots of really interesting and vibrant creativity-based stuff in here as well. Um, so uh, I'll let Seymour get straight into it. I was actually, uh, I was told by um, uh, by Emily Crosby, who kindly uh, logged this episode for me, uh, when she sent me the log, uh, she included in the email something on the lines of, it, it, this was a tricky one, Stu, because you do a lot of talking in this. And uh, and she's right. I'm going to, I've left in almost all of it. Um, I do do a lot of talking in this one. Uh, it, it's been a funny old week. <laughs> and um, this was recorded some time ago. Um, but it's been another funny old week and uh, I think it's fine sometimes for me to try and lay the groundwork of the subject matter when I'm when I'm interviewing someone um, so yes if you feel there's a bit more of me in this one than you normally hear and that's a problem sorry for that uh, maybe some of you like it but ultimately the person we're going to hear the most from in this episode rightly so is the very funny and very interesting Seymour Mace You've been frequently uh, uh, recommended to me as a guest on the show, and I have seen, I saw your show this year, and I saw your show in Edinburgh. I was trying to work out which one it was. Was it Imaginary Friends Reunited? That was the first one I ever did. Was was that when you were in... 2003, 4, something like that? Yeah. Long time ago. In the assembly rooms. It wasn't that one then, because you weren't in the assembly rooms, you were in the... Pleasance. uh, The Pleasance in in a a weird garden. Where they'd moved it because they'd moved it. Which it was one was me that? And another guy called Peter Slater. It was that was Sundayland. Sundayland. That was it. Yeah. And I couldn't find it on the um, on. The, well, I couldn't find any reference to it online. Right, <laughs> it was your there niche. You go. Yeah, <laughs> we got rid of it. Yeah, we got rid of all trace of it. Um, but um, the reason that like you you frequently come up is like people want to hear about your take on it all. 
Um, and then the most recent email I had was from a listener whose name escaped me uh, for the moment, I'm afraid. But she said, what made me laugh was, she said, um, oh, you should try and get Seymour while he's down in Soho. Um, he's, I think he's really, uh, he's in your wheelhouse. Bra- <laughs> brackets, street performing depression. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> so I was like, That's right. your wheelhouse, brilliant. Yeah. There you go. So you're in, we'll get on to both of those things, but tell me where you, what you're doing at the moment. You got nominated this year. Um, uh, I did, out of the blue, bit of a surprise. Yeah. There you go. Um, but that was nice. Uh, didn't expect this before I went, anything like that. I was kind of winding down, really. Yeah. Um, tell me about winding down. What is that? Like, you've been well, up there, giving, just giving it I've, I've year after year. I've 12 years straight, uh, just doing different shows every year. Sometimes two or three shows, but not these days. I'm not an idiot. Um, I know I can't. I can't split my audience. I can't afford to. <laughs> I need to all come to one show. Um, but yeah, I've been going for twelve years. I love Edinburgh. The first year I went, I had a terrible time because I got kind of caught up with all the hype that surrounds it and all the circus that goes on around you. And my agent at the time was all like, uh, "Oh, it's going to be brilliant. Um, th- th- there's a big hype. Oh, get yourself up there." And, and there wasn't. I was in the assembly rooms of the show. I was, I was happy with the show, but. Uh, not many people came. I was up against. I was at the time I was on. Was up against people like Daryl Aubrey and people like that. So most of my audience was made up of people who couldn't get into other shows. Yeah. Uh, so it was a bit and, weird. And you're not doing. I mean, that works for some people. If you're doing yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. bloke and a mic stand yeah, up. Yeah. Then then actually getting other people's overflow is sort of a hard. It's not a bad strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But presumably you were doing stuff then similar to what you were doing now. Yeah, just idiot stuff in it. Um, just being stupid. It's been called dark whimsy. <laughs> it's like, it's whimsy, but you swear, Lord. Dark whimsy. Dark whimsy. Fucking there hell. We go. That's worse than whimsy. Like, whimsy is an awful description <laughs> of it. But dark whimsy, Jesus. <laughs> Who else does dark whimsy? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, if you're the only like, person uh, doing it, we should probably respect it as a title. Andrew O'Neill, he probably does dark whimsy. Yeah, like, I suppose you're right. Yeah. Oh, I, can't, I can't bring myself to describe <laughs> anyone. There's a whole genre of us dark whimsy acts who've Fuck been ignored for years. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just dicking about, isn't it? Um, I like I like being stupid. Uh, the reason I got into comedy was because I was an idiot, because I was funny. And... Um, I'll try and get back to that as much as I possibly can is get back to the essence of that playfulness in it and um, kids love daft humour because you don't really have to think about it everybody gets it it's kind of you're not trying to say anything particularly with it I'm just saying this is stupid um, and stupid things make people laugh I think in a way stupidity um, it's probably the earliest form of comedy there is I imagine that the earliest things that caveman and that laughed at was another caveman hitting his head as he went out the cave or something like that or falling over or uh, you know somebody slapping somebody around the face with a fish that could have been one of the earliest visual jokes ever <laughs> and that would have come before all language and all that w- was even thought of you know that kind of communication that kind of sophisticated humour that has moved on to was just that ridiculous staffed slapstick in it and to me that's the essence comedy and then you can build on top of that do you have to prove to an audience that you're doing that because you've chosen to rather than because you can't write a proper joke um 
I think not not these days. I've done a long time. I'm, I'm not saying I should underline. I'm not saying you not can't wrong. write a proper joke. But do you know what I mean? In yeah, the eyes yeah. of an audience member, this, mm. the ten identical stand-ups down the road. Yeah. Yeah, go on. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify. It's just a, <laughs> I think it's it's just ways and means. It's, it's how you do stuff, and and I, all my best material I come up with when I'm on stage, and I think the the. That that's just the way that I work, and it builds from a, a lot of things. You start with one line, and you'll come up with that on stage. Like uh, uh, I've got a but the the one line I had was, "Do you think dogs get freaked out by people picking up their shit?" That was just a one line guy. You just throw it in there, people laugh or they don't. Yeah, but that's now built up in like five ten minutes because every time you say it, you just think of another little bit, another little bit, another little bit, and. I just find it much easier to come up with stuff on stage because I'm kind of in the moment and the, and and I'm performing there and the audience are there and it's 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 kind of happening where I find the whole process of sitting in the house looking to prepare but I find it really quite depressing yeah and um, it's so hard I think you can come up with things on stage that you couldn't come up with if you sat down for ages and because when you're trying to write things down you to you too. You're over analytical because you're not you're not there. You're not in front of an audience. It's not like immediate. So you start to think about what you're doing, and you start to think, well, will that work? Is it? Is that funny? As soon as you start to question whether or not something you do is funny, then you you got problems with it. You need. It's about confidence. It's about the reason that these the reason the things that I do are funny is because I'm funny. I don't, I don't need to analyze it any more than that. I'm funny, so if I do this thing, it'll be funny. And generally it is, because I'm a funny bloke. And that, it takes a long time to get the confidence to be able to say that, especially in our culture, because you're constantly, you know, you're supposed to downplay yourself and that. But I am funny. I've been doing this job for a long time. I must be funny. Or, you know, I wouldn't have been doing it for that long. I wouldn't have been getting paid for it. So it's that confidence thing of going out on stage and thinking, well, I'm funny. I don't care what you think. You don't know. I'm totally the imaginary audience here. Yeah. Um, and you, you go out with it. I think you have just a little bit of. Um, you can afford to have a little bit of contempt for the audience because most of them are great. Most people are lovely, but there will be some people there who want you to fail, and uh, they only want you to fail because they're jealous because they can't do what you do. <laughs> And those are the people in the audience that you see just locking eye contact with you. Yeah. And, it's, very, uh, it's very challenging, isn't it? When oh, you say yeah. locking eye contact, it's yeah. not just someone looking out the window or looking no. at their shoes. They they, they hate want to communicate you. to you how much they hate you and your sense of humour. And you reckon that's because they're jealous? Yeah, it's because they can't do it, because they would love to do what you do. But they can't, can they? <laughs> you have to sit there and seethe. And they also hate you because if, cause if they don't get it and everybody else does... They think there's some kind of conspiracy. People, I often say to people, please don't stare at me. Don't try and convince you how much you hate me by eye contact because I don't care. And get over yourselves because I, I don't mind if you don't think I'm funny. That's fair enough. But it's not willful. I'm not deliberately not being to your taste just to piss you off. So get over it, innit? And I think when you, when you, when you say that to people... A lot of audience members do realise and think, "Oh, I he's right." I suppose that's yeah. it. I'm just, a, I'm just, you like to you. just come out and say that. I'm just a bloke trying to do his job. You might not like me, but that's all I'm doing. I'm just, and they go, 
I didn't really say it like that. I just hated you. <laughs> you must have been through, I would assume, I may be wrong, I would imagine someone who brings to the stage not a proper joke structure, but, for example, from your last show, putting a box on your head and appearing in a puppet show with your face mm. in it. Someone who brings bits, trying to work out how many people there are called Gary in the audience and adding it, God, it killed me, adding it to like a total of how many Garys have been at each show. These aren't traditional jokes. Mm. So you must have been through a fairly long process of needing to believe in yourself in the face of dying on your ass. Have you? Um, like in the early days? Yeah, yeah, I used to die. I've never died loads. I think I've had a really good grounding because when I, all I ever wanted to do was perform. My earliest ambition was to be a clown when I was in infant school. And um, then as I went to junior school and all I ever wanted to do was act. I was always in the drama group. I was in drama groups all over doing plays and stuff like that. As soon as I left school, I knew that I wanted to perform. I never had any doubt my whole life that that's what I wanted to do. Um, so when I left school, uh, I was 19, I worked at Butlins for six months on the backstage crew. I actually went for a job as a red coat. Okay. And this is a man said I was too scruffy to be a red coat. <laughs> and did I want to do the backstage crew? So I joined the backstage crew at Butlins for a while, which was a good laugh. Got to meet uh, Little Large, Bernie Clifton. <laughs> uh, the Crankies. Bit weird. How did you find the Crankies? Oh, yeah. Yeah? They were... They were, they were you know what... I didn't really get Little and Large because that was my day off when Little and Large were on. So I met them and, you know, yeah. fine. But the Crankies were. I hope they don't listen to this, but they were a bit dicks, really. They were a bit, you know, a bit full of themselves, kind of the Crankies. Uh, okay. This would be what, like 20 years ago? Ooh, so more we, than we that. 19, kind of 1989. Like peak Cranky. Oh, they yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Oh, they were big. I mean, I'm just thinking we've got lots were, of listeners in uh, Australia and America. Right. How would you describe the Crankies to someone oh, for man. whom they're not part of the, oh, the psychological tapestry? Weird, isn't it? They're a married couple. Uh, a, a man has married... Uh, a, I don't know if she's officially a dwarf, but a tiny woman. A man's married a tiny woman and made a dress-up as a schoolboy uh, and made an act out of it. Yeah. I mean, I sort of, I have to say, a lot of those kind of acts, it's sort of easy to deride them, but they worked. Oh, when I was a they kid, I was worked. banging to us. Yeah. But that's it. It's, it's kind of a kid's kind of humour. But yeah, they weren't, they weren't the nicest of people. Okay. Um, they might have just been having a few off days. I did the light show for them. They might be on a podcast uh, now going, God, there was this red coat. <laughs> <laughs> there was this backstage guy. He's just an arsehole. Just didn't get us. Thought he was too niche. Yeah. <laughs> Chuckle Brothers, they were all right. Uh, the rumour I read about the Chuckle Brothers that one of them had elephant titles of the legs and that's why they wear uh, straight leg trousers but nobody confirmed that. Nobody managed to confirm it. <laughs> um, and Bernie Clifton, he was the nicest by far, Bernie I've Clifton. I've heard right? so many people say Bernie Clifton he was, was great. lovely. Because yeah. he would come in, we were all on the backstage crew, and he would come in, um, do the show, and he would get the backstage crew out on the stage. He would do this bit in the show um, where he would we'd sit the audience, right, we're going to do a song from a music, a song from the music, shout your favourite musicals out, and people would be shouting out, and... And then some woman shouts, Oklahoma! And he goes, hang on, hang on, what was that? And she goes, Oklahoma! And he goes, what? And she goes, Oklahoma! And he goes, you're joking, aren't you? And he says, shine a spotlight on this woman, stand up. This woman stands up with a spotlight on her. She says, what? Oklahoma! And then he just starts laughing at her. 
And then he goes like this. Yeah. And then one of the stage crew walk out, stand next to him, he just points at the woman, he goes, Oklahoma. And then we had to go, and just shake our heads. Like, and then there's about seven of us just all come out one by one eating sandwiches and that. And he's going, Oklahoma. All in it, we're just laughing at this poor woman who stood there going, oh my God, what have I done? Uh, and that was it end of the joke yeah move on that was a bit that he did more than once yeah it'd be nice that's a bit yeah there is something incredibly anarchic about that given the oh, sort of butlins yeah. you know what we think of as like a, mm. a butlins kind of an end of the pier a seaside family resort yeah. kind of show that's more kind of tending into sort of Vic and Bob oh, wait, territory he was another bit where he got us to chase um, I forget what it was but he was on stage just doing something and then somebody would run Round the back of him and go like he would be, you know, doing a double take to try and see who'd run past him. And then we'd just all eventually, he'd start chasing us, and then we'd all start <laughs> running round and round the stage, right like, backstage and then back on, like a big line of people. Oh man. And in the interval, the best thing about when they, in the break, he used to get his runner, send his runner down to the pub and buy drinks for all the crew. Okay, that's oh, lovely. God. So is this, is this sort of your. Comedy pedigree, is this the first time you're seeing live comedy? Or is that are you aware of a stand up scene? Well when I was you were when I was a there? kid I saw I remember going to Blackpool and seeing Little and Large and Karen and Ball my mum and thinking it was hilarious. Um so that was my fir- that was probably my first taste of live comedy was them. But I was my my dad got me into more kind of T V stuff, like big heroes of Tony Hancock and Leonard Rossiter and Eric yeah. Morgan. Um which I got into because my dad loved them. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's easy to look back on like people like Cannonball and Little and Large and that there and, and mock them. But when we were kids, that was fantastic. And yeah, some of them were better than others. And maybe Sid Little wasn't the most talented bloke in the world. But, you know, they worked and that. But my favourite was always Morgan Wise and particularly Eric Morgan because I just think he was a genius. Uh, Clown, a bit like Tommy Cooper, like similar kind. What of. was it that you? I mean, I totally agree with you. Mm. But for you, what was it that made Morecambe, Eric Morecambe your favourite? What quality did he have? Can you like pin down exactly it, what I you think? Mean? It, I think it's just how natural it seemed with him. More than anybody else, it just seemed like that was him, and that if you met him in the pub, he would be exactly the same as he was there. Um, and I think it's getting that, and that's what I try to. Achieve is is it's that thing of trying to to, to 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 be what you were before you were a comedian because before I was a comedian I was funny I didn't become a comedian and then say oh well I better stop being funny now I was funny anyway but I didn't have to write jokes down I didn't have to structure a routine or anything like that it was just funny and it's to me the first few years of your career you kind of learn all the rules of stand-up comedy and how you do this and how you hold a mic and how you stand and how you look at an audience and how you put down heckles and all this kind of stuff. And then for the next few years, you learn how to ditch all that and just get back to that essence of, I'm just going on stage, I'm just going to be funny. And I think, in a way, comedy's a little bit too structured and there's quite a lot of nights that are starting up now, kind of a new alternative scene of nights where they don't want you to prepare. They just want you to come and do whatever springs into your head when you're on stage. And I, I, those are my favourite nights to do. And if if I could, I'd never do the same joke twice. I would just go and make it up every night. Because it, it's, it's a lot more hit and miss, but the hits tend to be higher. Mm-hmm. You know, they're better. And the, the audience 
they're the only people ever going to see that it's almost like and I, I I have to choose my words carefully I you know when you see like improv shows like yeah. shout out suggestions from the audience improv mm-hmm. shows they they're capable of being brilliant you get magic yeah. moments that you go well this is magic because you know it isn't set up and but I don't find that I go and see them that often do you know what I mean yeah. I'm not attracted to yeah. that art form but I suppose what you're describing is a sort of a clowny stand-up-y improv-y sort of thing whereby what it's almost like the way that comedians can sit at the back of the room and watch their friend dying and find it hilarious mm. because you can see the choices that they're making you can see them bombing it's got a it's yeah. got a genuine emotional quality nothing's fake about someone dying i think that's why we enjoy it yeah, so yeah, much yeah. nothing's like oh this is this is part of the routine you go oh this is like stand up and theatre and documentary and improv. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? This is. I think I've only. I've just. I've just come up with that. That's, that's going to become a pet theory. It's real when someone dies. Yeah, and it's, it's routine when they And die. if you're dying and you know there's other comics in, you enjoy the fact that you're dying on stage yourself. <laughs> you know, if you've done it a long time, you get to that point where you say, "Right, I know. I know what this is. Yeah. I know I'm going to die here, so yeah. might as well have fun with it." So, oh, there are a couple of different questions. I want to try and hang on to different things that we've that we've brought up. Um, so, you're, if you, you would rather not do the same joke twice. Okay, that's, that's what I was going to ask. So, from, from starting out then, to know that you're funny, mm. where did that come from, knowing that you being funny with your mates was, or could be the same as you being funny on stage? Like, like cause lots of people are funny with their mates, and I think once we're in the hallowed realms of, actually, I've done a thousand gigs, actually, mate, yeah. y- you, you might think you're funny with your friends. But actually, it's a bit different. <laughs> and I, I suppose that, that has a certain... I suppose whenever I hear that, whenever I express that feeling myself, yeah. it's based on kind of fear. I'm like, I, I, I don't want you to prove to me that mm. all of my horrific gig experiences were unnecessary because <laughs> you, Joe Punter, can go out and be funny with your mates. Yeah, but I think it's a different thing, isn't it? It's, 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 it's degrees of how funny you are, and I'm particularly funny. And most good comedians are particularly funny. And that's why they end up as comedians. They're not just a bit funny. They're not just the funny one in a certain group of guys. They're the funniest kid in the school. It's that, you know, it, and it's like any job. It's Within the arts, there's a certain um, natural talent or creativity that comes out of certain people. And I am just happen to be particularly funny, so I've used that. Um, and I always knew that when I was a kid growing up. I was always a funny one in a situation. There might be this guy might be a bit funny, but I was funnier than him. And then you get friends who are funnier than you, like my friend Robert Parker. Uh, um, anyway, <laughs> doesn't matter. He was funnier than me, and we used to do them shows on tape when we were at school. You know, we tape yeah, yourself yeah. in a radio show, and I, he was hilarious. And I, I was think... pretty funny, but he's an accountant now. <laughs> so it's uh... so what? That's interesting. We've t- I've touched on that in the show in the past. I think every comic has got their friend that was funnier than them. Yeah. So this is Seymour, a real joy to talk to him. What a lovely bloke. And again, it's so nice to speak to someone who is completely unafraid to give their true opinions on a subject. And uh, and Seymour, I guess, is just... He's as far from affected a comedian, if you know the sense in which I mean that someone is affected, 
Um, he's as far from that as you can get, really. Uh, we'll get straight back into this as soon as we can. I wanted to do a quick shout out to Tony Quixote, who is from Portland, Oregon, and uh, who basically his presence at the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival uh, ensured that I am now head of international development there uh, because he's, I think, the person who travelled from the furthest away specifically to go to that festival. Tony is uh, a comic in Portland, Oregon, and he's been listening to the, the podcast for the last couple of years, really enjoying it. It was a real pleasure to meet him and uh, also uh, what can we uh, what can we say about the voting debacle um to, i don't think we're allowed to say anything about the voting debacle but tony's got his head screwed on uh, in an uh, in a political way and uh, it was a real pleasure to meet him so uh, if anyone's in portland oregon and they're listening there then uh, keep an eye out for a comedian called tony quixote who is uh, working his way around the clubs there he also i mean Maybe I shouldn't be spilling the beans on this. He said you could do... Was it 10? 20? I might have been 20. Let's say 10. He said you can do 10 spots a week in Portland. The different... And I was like, whoa, whoa, don't tell anyone. We're all moving to Portland. Um, and then obviously, of course, the, the difference is that none of them are paid. But maybe... I mean, are Portland going to be cross with me if I start establishing a little network whereby hundreds of UK open spots... I mean, if you're going to bash the circuit, why not go to Portland and bash the circuit for a month and do... However many gigs that is, 40 to 80 gigs, depending on my recollection of the anecdote. Anyway, uh, great to meet Tony. Thank you for listening. And um, that's that. The next thing is uh, the Ballam Free Fringe, which is coming up soon uh, from Friday the 29th to Sunday the 31st of July. So it's in a couple of months. And if you aren't, if you're based in London and you can't make it to Edinburgh, or even if you're based anywhere and you can't make it to Edinburgh, why not just leg it to Ballam for a weekend? Um, this is all under the auspices of the PBH Free Fringe as a fundraiser uh, and a preview festival for anyone that's on PBH's Free Fringe. And it includes acts such as Trevor Locke, John Luke Roberts, who I'm sure I, I tell everyone about this. He did one of the most eye-popping, brain-squeezing comedy shows I've ever seen last year. I can't wait to see what John Luke Roberts does next. We'll get him on the pod very soon. Uh, Kerry, Kerry Marks, brilliant, you know from the pod as well. The excellent Pippa Evans, Luke Benson, terrific comic. Uh, the frankly frightening Richard Gadd, uh, Danielle Ward, Abby Roberts, uh, and of course Chris Coltrane, who's organising the whole thing, is a, a great comic. All loads and loads of people as well. Uh, Chris's new show is called Socialist Fun Times, so keep an eye out for that. And those are all at the PBH Free Fringe. It's a free festival, and I believe all of the donations into the hat. And it's not a bucket, everyone. It's not a bucket. Can we all stop calling it a bucket on the Free Fringe? It's a hat. Have a bit of class. Um, I believe all of the donations go towards. Uh, it's a fundraiser for supporting the PBH uh, organisation. So pay what you like after each show and have a massive fun weekend. That's in Ballam from the 29th of July to the 31st of July at The Bedford. I don't think I said that before. It's at The Bedford. It's a fantastic uh, big venue with lots of different rooms in it. So I won't be previewing at that one, I'm afraid. I can't do it um, because I'm going to be in Montreal again. Uh, which I'm very excited by. If any of you are desperate to hear from certain Montreal-based comedians or people who you know are going to be uh, at the festival during that weekend at Just for Laughs, uh, then by all means get in touch, info at comedianscomedian.com or tweet me at comcompod uh, and let me know of people that you specifically want me to make a beeline for. I can't promise anything at this stage, but Maria Bamford is there and I'm going to be chasing her in a creepy, stalkery way until she submits to an interview because Maria Bamford is one of the most brilliant, brilliant comedians I think I've ever heard. So check out her stuff online as well. And if you can suggest anyone else uh, from Montreal, I will be there uh, doing one live show as part of the Comedy Pro season, like the, the Pat Oswalt one that I did last time. 
and in the four days or so three or four days that i'm there i'm going to be trying to spend every waking hour podcasting and bringing those files back to you now uh one more thing other than of course the the regular donations chat thank you to everyone that is continuing to set up recurring donations to the show uh, they are coming in in i don't want to say dribs and drabs that sounds too negative but there is a steady drip feed of uh people supporting the show in a lasting fashion by uh, setting up a recurring payment at comedianscomedian.com you can do that even if you're not on paypal there's a moon clerk thing there you can use uh, or you can do me a one-off donation of 10 pounds 20 pounds 160 whatever episode this is 767 pounds if you're feeling flush uh, and i mean one person did that once and i'm eternally grateful um but if you would like to support the show and you like it being ad free for the moment at least and you uh, are just if you feel it makes a difference to you if it makes it I've got to get a new spiel for this bit I think it does make a difference to people you you email and tell me that it does but what's a what's a different way of saying that if you find this show is it just I mean helping you it's not here to help people though I'm, I hope it does I think it does um, if you find that it's taking your mind off the social anxiety you suffer from the performance anxiety you suffer from or, or if it is if it is helping you bridge any sort of a gap or tar your boat or tar and feather your neighbours whatever it is if you're enjoying it and you'd like to support it please do that at comedianscomedian.com now far be it from me to just ask you to pay for nothing brackets 167 episodes but you can now buy a thing I'm testing out uh, Bandcamp with a release of my show Extra Life that I took to Edinburgh in 2014 this isn't the current tour show it's a recently concluded tour show it's not that show um, I'll be releasing that one later on but um, if you go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop you can download Extra Life I'm really proud of it it's got some really uh, it's got some really good stuff in it. It's got a tiny bit of visual stuff, which you won't be able to see because this is uh, an audio download only. Um, but uh, I think a lot of the visual stuff you can either uh, imagine, deduce, and one bit of it you definitely can't, so you'll have to grab me in a gig and make me perform it for you. That's uh, my partner's impression. Uh, she does impressions of inanimate objects, and uh, I copy her impression of food in the fridge. You'll have to get me to do that live. I'd never tire of doing it. Let's see if I live to regret that. But comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop, and you can buy Extra Life. It's £3, but you also have the opportunity, if you want, to pay far, far more than that. You can insert your own price. I think it's minimum £3. So uh, get yourself along there. Do that. And if you haven't got round to donating to the show in the past and you've always felt like you'd like to, then maybe this is the ideal opportunity. But uh, do get hold of that. I'm very proud of that show. And uh, this is me testing out how the whole band can thing works uh, ahead of me uh, releasing Break Glass which is now finished and done and dusted and I, I might get back to Steve and ask him to tweak one little tiny thing but I, I almost I'm a bit scared to do that but come on I want it to be perfect and probably he does too so uh, that'll be coming out very soon as well and then before too long uh, I'll be releasing the audio of an hour the most recent tour that's all of that stuff let's get back to Seymour mate here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You do have an innate belief in yourself. Like, oh, I believe I'm funny, but I do still struggle with uh, depression and... Um, but I know I'm funny. I'm, I'm not. I've, I've never doubted that I'm funny. So your I, depression I, uh, is never rooted in the feeling that maybe you're not funny. No, no. It's it's more to it's do separate. with. I, I do I do struggle because when you've been doing this for so so long, and I did street theatre off in my twenties as well professionally. So I've I've been a comedy performer. That's all I've ever been, and um, I really struggled with resentment when I got when I started to get depressed and got wrapped up with resentment and bitterness which is a really easy thing when you when you've been going for a while and then you see other people and they start and then two years down the line they've got their own show and this that and the other and it's so hard to to not judge yourself on, on them to not think well I'm failing in some way because I know I'm as good as they are but they've shut off and you know the, it's the, there's a thousand different reasons why, and it's you can either focus on the negative or the positive, and to me that's what depression is. It's just like a switch, and and when you're depressed, it's switched to negative, and everything is viewed in the negative. So you, all your achievements, you hold them up against people who've achieved more than you have, so that they seem less in comparison. Whereas when you switch that to positive then you hold yourself up against people who maybe haven't achieved what you have. So you think, well, I've had a great career. I've done loads of stuff. And it's 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 trying to kind of keep the switch to positive. But it's really difficult to do sometimes. And um, I've had... I, I don't put voice to it very often, but I, I've, I've, had, I, I've hated people who, who I know are really nice people, who are friends of mine. Who, you know, when they were starting, I used to let them keep around my house and that, where they had a gig around the corner. And then just uh, so much resentment that they've gone on to this huge success in my eyes. But then even when I analyse it, you think, well, would you want their career? And I think, well, probably not. I probably <laughs> yeah. wouldn't want to do exactly the stuff that they're doing. I probably want to do something else. But it's, it, it's, it's just something you really have to guard against. And... Uh, I think it's something you have to be aware of as well and accept the fact that you're not a bad person because you have these feelings. Mm. And uh, and uh, recognising that those feelings are wrong means that you're not a bad person because if you were a bad person, you would think, yeah, everyone's a cunt and that's fine to think that. Hey, that's a really good way of looking at it. Is that is that your own or is that, is that no, from therapy no, that's, speaking? No, is that's, that... I just, that's the way I see it. Yeah. And I think... I did a show about depression one year in Edinburgh called Happy Potamus, the, the year after I'd been diagnosed with depression. And um, I said to people then, I said a lot of people think they're a cunt. Um, and most people aren't. You see, uh, and the way to know that you're not a cunt is if the, you think you are a cunt. Because cunts don't think that they're cunts. 
You know what I mean? And that's a really easy way. Do so you think Alan Sugar is walking around his office thinking, no, fucking hell, I'm a cunt. <laughs> He's not, is he? He doesn't give a toss. And any anyone who has doubts and thinks, oh, God, I might be, I'm, oh, I'm a bad person, I'm like, oh, I'm terrible, you're probably not. Because if you were, you wouldn't have those doubts. You yeah. would just be thinking, oh, fucking great, fuck everyone else. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a struggle, and you've got to not... You, 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 you've got to be nice to yourself, haven't you? That, that cliche, you're your own worst enemy. And you are. And, I, it, and that's something that fascinates me about the whole thing about depression and mental health in general, is that the fact that your own body, your own mind, d- d- says and does much worse things than anybody else you'll ever meet, treats you like shit. Well, why would you do that to yourself? You're supposed to be your, your, you know, you're supposed to be on your side, but you spend so much time fighting against yourself. It's really weird, and I, I, I kind of, it affects me, and it's, it's, it's really bad and it's horrible being depressed. But as soon, once you're aware of it, once you get diagnosed, and then you can take a step back and say, right, I know what this is now, even though it's affected me, I know what it is. Then you can. It is really interesting. The, the the process that happens and the thoughts that come into your head and once you know what it is you can kind of sit and think about it and think well, that's weird that, that that your mind would do that that your mind would make you think that that your mind would make you kind of hate yourself it's, it's that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy stuff that you, you, you make bad things happen in your life because inside your brain you think well I, that's the way my life should go because I'm a dick and I don't deserve anything yeah. more than that <laughs> was it was it a relief to be diagnosed? Oh, massive, yeah. And when did that come? Was that fairly recently? It was. Uh, it was probably about two thousand and nine, ten. I was still living in Manchester. Um, and up until that point, you had because I went through something similar myself. Of, yeah. of like it was a long time ago, but realizing the first time someone says to you, "Oh, it's okay. You're, you all this thing, all this stuff that you're feeling, you're wrong." And mm. and it's a it's a condition, and there's help. Yeah. So it's not you. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to feel guilty about it anymore because it isn't you. It's a it's a. Well, I remember being told by someone that people thought I was miserable, and that was a shock to me because I moved. I grew up in Newcastle when I was a teenager. I was fairly bright and that, and meant daft and just all over the shop and um, buzzing all the time, and you know it was too much energy. Um, and then I, I, I started doing stand-up, I moved to Manchester, and I was getting a lift from a, a mate, Scott Tyrrell, who's a poet. And he went, um, he says, uh, oh, yeah, everybody knows you as miserable, like, affectionately. And I was like, what? He went, yeah, everybody thinks you're miserable. I was like, I'm not, I didn't even know. I was, people thought I was miserable. I said, all right. And it's weird because I, I'd, got, I'd been miserable for about three years, three or four years. And you just start to think, well, this must just be what getting old is. You, as you get old, you're just mostly miserable. You just don't have the kind of joy that you used to have as a kid. So you just get on with it. Yeah. And then when you get diagnosed with depression, suddenly you're like, oh my, that's why I'm miserable. That's why I've been so miserable for so long. And it just it, it becomes clear in your brain, like you said. And, and, and as soon as you, you know what it is, then there's much more hope of being able to yeah. deal with it. So that lifts you up straight away. You've got the doctors and you feel a little foreman, don't you? 
they give you a little form and you have to tick like from between one and ten what your feelings are yeah, and yeah. if you get enough points you woohoo I did that I didn't, I didn't do that at the doctors I did that in the back of a book which is probably on that right. shelf over there um, I think it's called Feeling Good by Dr. David Burns that right. comes to mind if anyone wants to Google it cool. it opens one of those things where how often do you think this you know give yourself out of ten how do you feel about this and you do it and you go oh yeah you're, you're moderately or severely yeah. or whatever else yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, absolutely it's a weight that lifts so I think I was uh, a depression with a touch of anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little twist of anxiety there. Um, and, and do you feel that that was something that was always with you or was that largely created or nurtured by resentment about work, about comedy? I think it developed over time. Um, it wasn't just resentment. I think it's, it's, I think Stan has a very lonely life as well, especially... Um, so I'm a single bloke and I've always struggled with relationships and um, never lasted very long and stuff like that. Um, and I don't drink, so I don't have that to kind of grease the social wheels. And because I don't work in a conventional job, I don't have a lot of people meet their partners at work in kind of nine to five environment because then you have kind of a social life that you do things with other people at work. Um but because so I work alone... My, my listeners will be sitting at home listening to this going, she was absolutely right. This is right in Stu's territory. <laughs> I talk about this all the time. Absolutely. Street theatre depression. Yeah. <laughs> Broken clowns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, do, you have too much time to dwell on stuff. You travel to a gig, you do the gig, um, and and it's also that, that kind of juxtaposition between that when that 20 minutes you're on stage... Most of the time, um, everyone thinks you're great. You're everybody's best mate. You could high-five the whole room if you wanted to. And say, yeah, this is brilliant. We're all in this together. Um, and then the moment you step off stage, that's gone. Nobody's, and and nobody's they're really all still having it. Yeah, they're, they're all they're, still they're, having they're, a great time. And they're, they're having it with the next mates. guy. Yeah. They're having it with the next guy. Yeah. And you're like, Fuck, who's this I guy? thought we were friends. Yeah, thought, <laughs> What's going on? Why are you laughing at him? Yeah. Uh, and then you go out, get in the car, drive home. So within like 10 minutes of being in this huge atmosphere, you're sitting in the car in the dark by yourself, driving for two hours, going, yeah, it was nice. Yeah. It's almost like if you wanted to make someone normal depressed. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like a really good technique. Yeah. So there's some awful reality TV show. You've got a month to make this person clinically <laughs> depressed. Making them do stand-up comedy mm. and separating them from everyone else. Yeah. could do that. So are there, are there ways now that you cope with that? Do you, do you do kind of what a therapist would call self-care? Do you know what I mean? Do you make sure you're not as alone as you might be? Do you do you try, I try and, and look alter after myself, life? and you try and do stuff. Like I started baking and joined a cake club and things like that. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Tell yeah. me about cake club. Uh, it's just uh, it's it's like uh, it's probably about twenty women and me. Um, I've had thoughts like this yeah, yeah. or the going and attempting to come up with stuff and going yep it's I'm now I'm doing a, a, a first aid course yeah. and yep I'm pretty much the only comedian on <laughs> could be work. I mean you could be turn up and there's 20 comedians and you and you're yeah, like yeah I saw that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, just then you all make a cake and then you turn up and you all have try each other's cake and have a cup of tea and then talk about being pregnant and talk about you <laughs> 
bring your <laughs> newborn kids and all that and then go away again. And is that successful? Does it work? At it kind was of nice, you yeah, I haven't been for a while because they're fairly sporadic and I've been mm. a bit doing a bit more work lately so I haven't been to the last few but yeah, at the time it was great. It was just what I needed to and it's that thing of having to force yourself to do stuff because because you've kind of closed yourself off from the world for so long that doing normal things don't feel normal. It feels a bit weird to go and socialise with people. So you have to force yourself to do it the first few times Absolutely. until it starts to feel and, and you're all, normal you're, again. You're not just forcing yourself to do something. You're a depressed person forcing yourself to do something yeah. a bit weird. That fit, it's very easy to get... I'm sure it was very easy to get up to the door of Cake Club and go, yeah. what the fuck am I doing? I'm going to get back, yeah, yeah. Just get back all, the All those things, that are, the, all that you're preparing for, you can make, you can, you, all in the back of your mind, you always think, well, I can't really be arsed with this, I can't really be arsed with this, probably mm. won't go. Then you've got to go. And then nine times out of ten, you go. You do go to these things and you you do have a good time. Yeah. Um, and, in, you know, a couple of times, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I probably made the best cake. <laughs> Among 20 women, that's not bad, is it? Not Come bad. Come on, bang. And you could see a few of them weren't happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> Who is this? For <laughs> these single bloke, no kids, I think, making cakes better than me. Uh, I've invented my own cake, which is uh, peanut butter and jam baked cheesecake. Hello. Oh, yeah. Is the uh, recipe available for that anywhere? Yeah, well, in my <laughs> you head. Tweet. <laughs> you tweet make the, the recipe. Base, you make the base from uh, Jammy Dodgers. So, like, where's up Jammy Dodgers okay. to make a cheesecake? The whole the Jammy Dodgers is put chuck them all oh, in with, with them the jam in, in there, yeah. yeah, all in with jam in as well, yeah. yeah. You make your base, then you, you blind bake the base to cook it because a baked cheesecake was better than a fridge cheesecake. Okay. Then you make your filling, which is like, it's got eggs, brown sugar, um, milk, I think it might be, but, and then tons of peanut butter in it. Uh, whisk that all round. Put that on top of your, um, put that on top of your base, and then I make a, like a strawberry compote, which is just strawberry jam, really strawberry <laughs> compote. But then put gelatin in the compote, and then okay. pour that on top of the cheesecake, okay. so that it sets a little so you get the jelly kind of translucent... layer of jam on the top. Yeah. yeah, and there you go. And what's it called? Uh, peanut butter and jam baked cheesecake love it oh it's nice it <laughs> is very great. nice yeah, yeah yeah I know I've got at least two listeners who are proper bakers like yeah, full time yeah. cake makers yeah I like peanut so, butter as yeah. well and I like baking with it I found because I got an American cookbook and had a Georgia peanut butter pie in it which is a bit like a banoffee but with peanut butter okay. involved um, and then I thought yeah peanut butter is great and there's not that many th- sweet things cooked with peanut butter so I started making peanut butter shortbread and stuff like that, and then just thought I'd try the peanut butter baked cheesecake. What do you I'm know, amazed Tim this or? isn't a show. I'm just laughing because yeah. I'm like, I mean, Cake Club is just so Edinburgh ready a concept. Yeah, well, <laughs> at Christmas I did a gingerbread cheesecake, oh, I know. which is a Martha Stewart recipe from America, and that was nice. Is she the one that went to prison? Cheesecake, she did. Yeah, tax evasion or something. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, cakes. still a good baker. <laughs> <laughs> so. Other, like, self-care within the industry then. We've talked about keeping yourself busy and trying to go out and do things. And yeah. that's, it's hard, but it does work. Mm. And you've talked about flipping the switch so as to not be um, resentful, to, yeah. to be more positive, to be more grateful, those sorts of things, which are re- really, really important to do. 
You mentioned writing a show about depression when you when mm. you made the show Hippopotamus. Yeah. Was it did, did it have the same sort of collage of crazy stuff feel as Niche as fuck, your most recent show, uh, or was it more like a, a man talking about something? No, it was, there were there was lots of stupid stupid little things in it to do I have drawings in it and things like that um, but it was the first time that I tried to do stand up where I actually talk about my own experiences because prior to that all my stand up had just been kind of surreal daft you know things are popping in my head um, and this was the first time I'd actually looked at talking about things that had actually happened to me maybe enhancing them a little bit but you know basically things that I'd been through which I know other stand-ups are done, and you know I found I find some people who do that really funny, but it's not something that I'd ever done, and not something I felt confident doing. But because the depression at the time was the biggest thing in my life, it was the only thing I could think of. So it was either don't go to Edinburgh or do a show about this, um, and it worked a lot better than I expected it to, because um, it was it was a lot wrapped up in. It was the time when I briefly moved to London and lived in Cranley Gardens. In uh, I read in the uh, review a notorious house in London. I thought that'd be Cranley Gardens. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Who um, was there at the time? I think Matt Kirshen was there, uh, Nick Coppin, um, Henning Vane, and uh, Wayne Deacon. Okay. Um, the best thing about it was I taught Henning how to do DIY. Uh, is that when he did his show Einz DIY that, that's, that's as a result on, of you yeah, that's, <laughs> that's as a result of me he used to turn up he bought a drill because he was he, he initially was fascinated that you could do things yourself like fix the curtains and things like that <laughs> and then he bought a drill electric drill and he used to come in and uh, with his drill and just go are we doing some DIY today <laughs> <laughs> and were you were you going out and Gigging just, I mean, without an agent in London, yeah. there's a lot of work around. There's a lot of open spots around. Yeah, Were you yeah. going out and doing stuff? I wasn't stuff, doing any you... of that because, right. because I'm a terrible agent and I was my own agent. Yeah. And I wouldn't recommend me as an agent to anyone. <laughs> uh, but as a comic rather than an agent. <laughs> and most of the gigs I was doing, because I'd moved down from the north, most of the gigs I was doing were still up in the northwest and northeast. So I was just driving like hours and hours. So I, oh, I would live in. You there. moved to London and then and kept I was working driving in the back east. to Manchester and all that. Because those were the gigs I, that I could get myself because most of my gigs was repeat work. Mm. And because I rarely ever gigged in the South, I just didn't have any contacts. I didn't know anyone. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was a horrible experience. After three months, I thought, I can't do this anymore. I went back to Manchester. Um, and then it wasn't long after that that I decided the best thing to do was probably go back to Newcastle. Um, because it's kind of my home uh, my family there I had a lot of friends there so I knew that I'd be I could keep myself busy and you know see catch up with people and it wouldn't be stressful it's quite a chilled out mm. place that, um, and that really worked uh, I went there and I found that the access to counselling um, was a lot easier to come by than I found it in Manchester and initially uh, I, I did uh, some counselling with the with NECA, which is the Northeast Council on Addictions, because I had a real problem with smoking weeds constantly. Mm. Um, so they really helped me with that, uh, helped me control all that, and then I moved on and got some CBT because I'd been at the, the, in Manchester. They tried me on loads of different antidepressants, and none of them had worked. I'd kind of got the side effects, but I hadn't got the benefits. Um, 
so 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 the 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 Necker counselling was what really kind of turned me around and got me back on my feet in Newcastle, and then the CBTL helped me a little bit more. That cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good kind of that's sort of known as a not necessarily a quick fix, but it, it can work quite quickly. Yeah, and get you to the next appointment, sort of thing. It's supposed to be better than it's supposed to be the best way to deal with depression, CBT statistically, um, and it helps. And but then. It's weird because then you, you you leave that and then you're okay and then maybe a few months later you you slide back into depression, but you there's a part of you that says well you can't go back to counselling because you've done that haven't you been there you've done that how can you go back there and then it's like saying and then well use were rubbish you didn't even fix me I'm still broken come on but it's a thing that you've just got to be aware of of you've got to be able to measure and think well I feel a bit bad am I as bad as I was before I went to hmm. NECA. No, I'm not that bad, hmm. so I'm okay. That's very CBT, isn't it, to be, yeah, to yeah. be trying to attack it logically yeah. and go, come on, what's the actual evidence for this? Is this yeah, just yeah. me feeling bad? Mm. And, 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 it's, it, and it doesn't take much to turn it around. It doesn't take much to make you feel a bit happier. But it's that thing of... You, you, you always kind of second guess. It's, it's hard to just let yourself go and be happy because there's so, there's that fear there that if you do that, then that all goes to shit. So you're always a bit wary. You're like, oh, well, I'm feeling a little bit happy. And in a way, it's, sometimes it's a little bit weird feeling. I'm in Edinburgh this year. Um, as well as doing my show, I was doing a thing with a comedian's theatre company called 10 by 10 by 10 where there's a lot of different comedians doing 10-minute monologues. And... Uh, so there's a few people doing that so there's a bit of camaraderie you know you'd meet with the guys for on for the show and um i remember them saying to me um when i turned up one day and everything was after the nomination or whatever and one of them went oh you're happy and i was like oh yeah man <laughs> yeah it was, it was really weird because i had a smile on my face and i was yeah. like yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's, i feel all right yeah and it is it's getting it's, it's kind of it's a weird feeling when you when you've been on not not miserable, just been on kind of a level. And I think that's something about depressed people is that some people they find it hard to believe you're depressed because they, they want you to be walking around with a, with a, a frown on your face the whole time. And you're like, well, depressed people aren't miserable all the time. You just tend to be kind of in a, some weird non-emotional state where you're just floating along. And so when you do have like your highs, when you feel happy, it's it's like, whoa, that's weird. Oh, I had that's, a, that's happiness. That's great. I had a, a thing about a year ago. Like I'm definitely, just while we're onto this, I'm, I don't know if this will make it into the <laughs> final thing, but um, I am ha- certainly happier now than I've ever been. It's, I'm sure it's to do with having a baby on the way. It's to do with living with my partner for the first time properly. And... And and it's to do with a good three years worth of psychotherapy that I've been doing. Yeah. And um, I remember about a year and a half ago, I just had this weird way of thinking about the world. I just remembered going, oh, I just need to remember to be happy because it's depression is so habitual. Yeah. That you just you have that that expression that that experience of going, oh, it's just like this. The world is just like this. And then something nudges you. Go, no, it isn't. And you go, oh no, it isn't, is it? Yeah, yeah. And then two days later, you've forgotten that because it just came up, and you're just in your habit of going, oh well, that's mm. just how things are. And I remember having this experience of just stepping back from the world and just looking all of it, looking at all of it through a frame, and just going. 
I mean, literally everything that's going on inside this frame is great. Yeah. Great. I'm going to be in a great mood. And it's... I mean, I saw an old mate of mine last night who went to see Henry Rollins together. All right, cool. And um, I was saying to him afterwards, I've been seeing him for months, I was like, I'm just so happy at the minute. And then even in saying that, I went, <laughs> yeah, I really am, you know, just kind of recognising it. And it's like this kind of... Don't take this away from me. Yeah, you, you know yeah. what I mean? You you feel mm. like I've got the thread of something here. I'm on the case. This is so much better than life not feeling like this. Yeah, yeah. Holy fuck, can people if you see me miserable, just come up to me and punch me and just <laughs> grab me by the shoulders and go, Remember? You know? Mm. Yeah, it's uh, and then I'm kinda no no matter how depressed I am, even when I was at lowest of the low I I I was never suicidal or anything like that. I always had hope always had hope and I always thought this is going to get better this is going to be alright one day I'll be alright I'll get better and I still do and I, and and um, even these days when I have my periods of depression I'm still really hopeful um, for my life and for what's going to come um, and things are going well and things are you know Edinburgh is really helpful to my career and things are kind of taking off a little bit now which is great um, and it, it is that thing of of the positive negative thing as well. You, I could think, well, that's taking too long to happen. Yeah. Or I could think, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Something's finally happening. Um, but I think it's good in a way. I think if you pick peak too soon, then it must be fairly bleak. If you're like Macaulay Culkin, you did the, <laughs> your, your best work when you were ten. Yeah. And then the rest of your life is... It's never going to live up to that. Yeah. It must be weird. Whereas I still feel inside me, I still feel I'm kind of on my way to somewhere. Um, I kind of want to peak when I'm 55 because that's my favourite number. <laughs> <laughs> so I think psychologically I've told myself that, so that's why I'm going to hit the, hit the heights. Looking back over the last 10 years of your Edinburgh shows, you seem to be someone who's always tried something different. Mm. Like you did a kids show, yeah. then there was a stand-up, the Happy Potamus show, not all chronologically this, and then you did Squig, yeah. which was an impro show. Yeah. So you were just riffing on topics for an hour every day. Yeah, that was... Tell that me was about a... that. I really, having seen Tommy Tiernan this year do his, like, you know, coming out and trying to improvise a novel every night, effectively. Right, right. You know, I mean, it wasn't yeah, a yeah. novel, but that's, that's my pet way of talking about it, because, you know, he wasn't riffing for ideas. He yeah. was trying to say things he'd never said before. Mm. I've been really inspired by that, and I'm really inspired to hear about Squeg. Tell me about the experience of doing that. Well, again, it was it was I had to do it because of the depression. Because I'd I'd up until kind of the second week in July, I'd been building props. I'd been getting a show together that was kind of similar to the one that I've done this year in the last couple of years. Um, I had all these little games to play, all these little rounds. Uh, I built a massive papier-mâché fake head that I was going to wear. And I, was, I had this game called Guess What's in Seymour's Brain. You had to guess, and then I opened the head up, and there was a pink brain balloon in it, and then you would pop the balloon into however word in it. Um, and loads of stuff that would have worked really well. And, and in this state of mind, I know that it was, there was, wasn't wrong, anything wrong with the ideas per se, but because I was depressed... 
you just don't have confidence in it. I just had no confidence in the show, no confidence in any of the ideas. I didn't know why they were funny. I didn't think they were funny. Um, and I couldn't take them at Edinburgh, but I already had the show booked in. It was, you know, two weeks before the start of the run. Um, so I either had to cancel or do something else. And I'd always, in the back of my mind, I always wanted to do a show where I didn't have anything, where I just went and did it off the top of my head. So I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity to do that because the title is fairly non-specific. Uh, so I Fair, just, fairly, yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. That's what I'm titling February. I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I tell you, that helped me so no much. No idea. This, Edinburgh just gone. I called my show an hour. Yeah, and yeah. Having made that decision of just like, yep, it, anything goes in it. The best stuff on the day goes mm. in it. It was hugely liberating. Yeah, you, it's, you can constrain yourself. Uh, All my show titles are massively vague. Yeah. Well, I mean, even write it in July. Yeah, (laughs) I think my show, call my show this year, written in July. (laughs) But yeah, so I got two weeks before Edinburgh, and I had to do it. And I had a, I had like two or three previews still booked in, so I thought, right, I'll try it them, see if it works. So I just got a box, loads of bits of paper, pens, and then I would. Uh, I explained to the audience for the first 10 minutes I kind of explained the process of how it got there and that I'd prepared all this other show and stuff and that it had all gone to tits and out the window and then I gave out the piece of paper and the pens and I just said to people just write anything you want on the piece of paper write a word, write a question, write your name draw a picture, anything, doesn't matter put it in, collected them all up in the box um, and that was it then got the box on stage, opened the box took the bits of paper out one by one and that was the show and and some some things you take it out, you just read it. It's funny. You put it aside. That's it. Other things might develop in a whole little routine. I remember. I think the favorite thing I remember doing was, I don't know how it got to there, but I was jumping up and down on the spot, pretend, pretending to be uh, a dildo that a dinosaur would use. <laughs> Um, and I was just jumping up and down, being this giant dinosaur dildo, and I can't remember how I got there. But uh, again, that's one of them things that I don't think I could have sat for a year with a piece of paper in front of me and never thought <laughs> I'd do a massive dildo. For and a and did you did you want to save any of that material, like the best bits of that, to then turn into next year's show? I did, and I did get my tech uh, Luke, hello Luke, to record it all, and he recorded loads of the shows um, and then I took the recordings home um, and I still haven't listened to them this was like uh, maybe three years ago uh, two three years ago and I just hate listening to myself I hate yeah. it. that's boring it's not On, it's, oh. loads of people have problems listening listening back and, and, I, and I should and, and there's part of me the, the, the kind of business part of me brain which is tiny <laughs> says, uh, says right you should listen to them because there might be good material in there and then you can use that material and blah blah blah, 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 blah. but then the other side of me says well fuck that I'm still funny I'll come up with funny stuff that's just as funny as that. I don't yeah. need to listen to that well I think that's totally valid because I it's easy I think to fall into the trap it's easy for me to fall in the trap of going oh, I, did, I did 10 the other night and I said something funny at that bit that I never yeah. said before and I listened back to it and, I t- and the danger is that you spend a lot of time sharpening nothing 
you yeah. know, or sharpening something tiny that isn't as funny as something as working on a thing in the moment. It's taken yeah, yeah. years to get my head around that to stop to stop trying to create a perfect thing mm. that will always work. Yeah, to rescue me from the fear of doing a gig. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've never because I've always just been really playful with it, and I've never written stuff down like literally written it down. I'll write bullet points on my hand and stuff like that, but I'd never write material down word for word or anything like that. Because I just think that, that, that if you do that, there's a danger of it then sounding like you're reading off a piece of paper. If you kind of yeah. learn by rules, which some comedians do, because, you know, they have to, because that's their style, that's fair mm. enough. But for me, I just couldn't do that. So most of the... Even at home, like, I meet people now and they'll say, oh, I saw you... However many years ago, I'm at that joke. I still remember that joke you told. And they'll tell me this joke, and I've completely forgotten the joke. The whole routine. I'm like, all right, yeah, well, that's funny. Isn't it? That's funny. And I'll start doing it again for a few nights. Yeah, but it's you have to. If you end up recording a DVD on the, yeah. you know, if the next things that happen mm. for you sort of fall into one one possible path. You should crowdsource it. <laughs> you should say, anyone who's ever seen me, yeah. tell me your favourite bit. Yeah, yeah, and then we'll wham, you've got a script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's it. I just, and I think that I don't record stuff uh, generally. I don't write stuff down. I've got a list of, like I said, little, just words that suggest bits to me in a list. Mm. Um, but I've forgotten loads of stuff that I'll never do again. But I don't mind because... I'd rather do that and have that experience of things being fresh um, and doing gigs where I'm just coming up with stuff off the top of my head because that's what I enjoy. That is the process. I enjoy that process more than I enjoy the process of repeating something that I've said before and, you know, making it better or whatever. Mm. Um, I like that. I like doing stuff that's fun and that's funny and that I know is going to get a laugh and this always works, whatever, but... More than that, I like to just go with nothing and see what comes out. So what decisions are you making about your show? The one just gone, so Nisha's Fuck at Edinburgh, and I was lucky enough to see the one where your mates all stood outside and sang. Oh, that was brilliant. That yeah. was incredible. Yeah, I was touched. Um, it was really, it was mm. really moving, because I think we, the audience, went through a kind of, a, oh, this is fun, he's interacting with the environment. Oh, my God, he's set up this huge thing. Oh Jesus! He hasn't set it yeah, up. Yeah. It's actually, and you. I think it's on YouTube. I think someone can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's beautiful. Seymour Mays getting pranked. That's it. That's it. Um, but that's, that's apparently I was supposed to shout something at them, but I was too over overwhelmed. It I didn't lovely. want to shout over the second. <laughs> it was lovely, but um, but so that that version of the show that I saw, how similar to that? It, no, that's the wrong question. What I'm trying to ask is, if you're not writing stuff down and you're not working with, like, a director, you've got a bunch of things that you do, presumably in the same order every night. Yeah. So what decisions are you making about how to improve things that already work? What what kind of over... what When you're being your own director, making decisions about what stuff to do and what, not stu- and what stuff not to do, what are the principles you're working to? What are the decisions that you're making? I think it's just if it's funny, isn't it? I think it's as simple as that, and if it's... I think if you say something that's funny and if it's funny enough then the chances are that you remember to say that thing again uh, within the within the bounds of of that little bit um but it's it's organic in a way that the the Edinburgh shows for me it's 
because you get depression as well, it's, a, it's about taking those moments where you're feeling good and using those moments to create what you want to create. And then when you're feeling rubbish, just saying, okay, I'm feeling rubbish now, so I'm going to have to leave that to one side for a bit until I start to feel a bit better again. Um, and that's why my shows tend to be quite bitty. Like, they'll be a bit here, a bit there, next bit. And then you can kind of take them out and slot in new bits and things like that. Um, but it all just develops. Like, this, the whole puppet show thing where I had my head through the box, all that was was I share flat with... Um, Simon Donald in Newcastle, who's one of the co-creators of Viz, but that's irrelevant to this story. But he had something delivered in a massive cardboard box. And uh, it was the cardboard box just sitting there in the front room. And I was just sitting watching the telly. Um, <coughs> I remember just looking at the box thinking, oh, I could do something with that box. And I thought, oh, yeah. <coughs> and then a couple of days later, I just looked again and thought, oh, you could make it, you could do like some kind of puppet theatre. And then my head, it's all just going on in my head, and you're looking at it, and then you... I saw it being a puppet theatre, a conventional puppet theatre with puppets on strings, marionette puppets hanging mm. down from the top. <coughs> and then you think, well, that might be a bit difficult, I haven't got any marionettes, and then you start to think, well, oh, well, you could do it from the bottom with, like, glove puppets. Think, How do I make a glove puppet? Um, and I love charity shops, and I love going to charity shops, but you don't get many glove puppets. But what you can do is just buy a teddy bear or anything like that, cut a hole in its arse and stick your hand in. And nine times out of ten, you'll be able to stick your hand in the in the uh, legs or whatever. Just listen, you are someone who's clearly done this ten times in yeah, order yeah, to arrive yeah. at that figure. Yeah. <laughs> it'll, uh, it'll work as a puppet. And and the fact that you've made it adds to the flavour. And, and I think as a creative person, you should try and do as many of the creative things as you can to do with your show so with my shows especially over recent years I design the posters I make all the props I make all the creative decisions and I'm responsible for them um, and I think people like that and it doesn't matter if you're not very good at drawing it doesn't matter if um, you know if, if, if you can't it doesn't matter if your poster doesn't look slick it looks like you've done it which is what people who like you want to see and it makes it stand out from all the other posters. And it's fun. And it's part of getting back to that thing of being playful and just being a big kid. If you went to a, like a, 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 a junior school and you said, right, you're putting on a show, you're going to make everything, they would be well up for it. And they'd be making props and sets and costumes and daft hats and stuff like that. Why shouldn't I do that? Why shouldn't I enjoy doing it? Just because it's my job doesn't mean that I have to see it as a chore oh god I've got to make props for this what's the matter with that it's great and when we give the right arm we will sit there and cut up boxes and paint them and stuff and <laughs> little houses pictures on and flying ducks going up the wall so um, so can you give us an example then of something that you cut from that show and, um, and why well just doing previews and that I don't do loads of previews but I tend to do five or six previews before I come up just to run stuff out. And I'll do them in different venues. So I might do one at the stand, but then I also do them at people's houses. Because I think you uh, doing it in someone's front room, you, you get kind of more of a flavour of, of, of a fringe venue. So a fringe venue is a lot smaller than comedy clubs, so it's mm. difficult to uh, gauge it. And, yeah, it's just a matter of trying things out. And then some things work better than other things. Some things you get rid of just for practical reasons because maybe it takes too long to get changed into it. 
Like I used, I, I, I did do. Uh, I had interpretive dance in the show. I did interpretive dance to Broken Wings by Mr. Mister. <laughs> and I had this whole bird costume that I made out of all this stuff I got from a charity shop. Um, and just because I think interpretive dance is funny and the fact you interpret in the words of the song is great. Um, but again, it's it, it, it's either too... It was probably a bit similar to another bit where I've got music in. So it's just what works and what doesn't. And it's really... I think a lot of people can read more complexity in it than there is. Mm. There's loads of daft bits, and then you might look at them, you say, right, we've got all these daft bits, right? Well, this bit's quite long, that's quite short. Right, I'll go long bit, short bit, long bit, short. <laughs> and that's it, and it's as simple as that. And, 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 and then you eventually, so you'll be long bit, and then you think, oh, well, actually, this bit probably worked well at the end, and this bit's at, at the start. If you've got a good start and a good end... I fucking have what you want in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel then that this nomination for the Comedy Award has justified your way of doing things? Like, without this nomination, if that hadn't happened this year, if you'd gone up with another show you believed in mm. and you... I mean, you said at the beginning, and I'm interested in how much truth there is in that, that you, you said at the beginning of this show that you, you want to be niche because you're bored of being unsuccessful. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you, you know, you were someone who was like you were on my radar, I suppose, as a fellow act. But I, but you weren't someone who, without this award, would have been playing Soho Theatre, say, without yeah, the nomination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, and Soho Theatre is sort of seen as a kind of a, a like a benchmark, or maybe I'd mm. maybe comics see it like that. Maybe audiences don't. I don't know, but yeah. you know, you do the show at Edinburgh. If it's good enough, you'll be one of the comparatively very small number of shows uh, that get the chance to perform elsewhere, and yeah. a particularly prestigious elsewhere is Soho. So, were it not for the nomination, you maybe wouldn't have been doing a no, weekend no, there. I mean, well, you've been doing two weeks not. now. No, no. So, do you feel that the award? What does it mean to you? Does it mean that it's kind of justified the the mental way that you work? I suppose on a, on on the level of uh, creativity and on the level of judging my art, it uh, doesn't mean anything to me because it's the opinion of ten people, and you know, and I'm very happy that they like my show, and I'm very happy that they nominated me because it's it it's going to hopefully do wonders for my uh, career. But I'm I know it doesn't mean that I'm I'm no funnier than I was last year. Uh, I'm no funnier than anybody else. I just dropped on lucky this year that those ten people like my show. Next year it'll be ten completely different people on the panel. They might think my show's rubbish. You just take the opportunities when they come along, and you just have to be in the game to get the opportunities. And this is the thing: is I've been going to Edinburgh for that long that eventually something happened. Great, but it doesn't. I knew I was funny anyway. I always knew I was funny. I don't need ten people who don't know how to be funny like I do to tell me that I'm funny. I know I am. The fact that they've finally got on board and said, yes, you are, well, well done for catching up, isn't it? I already, <laughs> I already knew that. Uh, but I'm, uh, but that's it. And, 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 and it's, it's, you can't get, you can't believe the hype in it. I know that I'm just the same guy and, uh, like I said, I'm no funnier than I was before, and this award doesn't mean any. It doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else or anything like that. It just means that I dropped unlucky, and uh, and I think the reason I did is because I stuck in there because I kept going, I kept going, I kept going, I kept going, 
Um, so that's the only advice I would give to other people is just keep doing it. Keep doing it, keep doing it. You get younger acts who go up, maybe go up two or three years, and then they say, oh, I've had enough of Edinburgh. It's such a slog and all that. It's, oh, it's so hard work. And to me, I'm bemused by that. And when people, when it gets to the third week and people are going, bloody hell, I can't wait to go home. And I think, like, well, it's a man. I suppose because when I go home, I'm sitting by myself in the flat. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> I think you've got the opportunity to be part of the biggest arts festival in the world. Um, why wouldn't you take that opportunity if you're an artist? Why not? Why wouldn't you go there every year? To me, it's I don't get it. I don't get not going to Edinburgh. Um, I think, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm just a job and coming. I just want to pay the mortgage and that. Well, fair enough, if that's what you want to do. But to me, to be... A proper artiste, if you want to get cliched about it, that's the biggest art fest in the world. It's a it's a privilege to go and perform there, um, and I love Edinburgh. I've never made any money, but I don't care. I kind of treat it like a holiday. And I learned from the first the first year I went, I had a terrible experience in Edinburgh. Really didn't enjoy, so I took a year off. And then what it taught me the first year was the only thing that you've got any control over in Edinburgh is whether or not you have a good time. Um, so I always try to have a good time in Edinburgh, and I do enjoy myself, and I try to forget all the circus that goes on around it, just have a good time, enjoy myself, um, and then go home and be miserable for a month because I'm missing <laughs> Edinburgh. Uh, but you... the, go on, sorry. But the, the, uh, the award's great, and because and I've been very really cynical about awards, I think a lot of people are, Um and very bitter and that, like I said. And then when you when you get nominated, one of the things that really touched me was um, you don't realise how many people respect you. Because I live in Newcastle, I'm not really part of a the scene down south, so I don't. There's a lot of people that I only see in Edinburgh. And 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 part of the bitterness and resentment that fills you up is you you also feel that other people don't like you. And you feel that people think, because you're depressed, they think you're aloof or they think, you know, you're arrogant because maybe you walk past them with your head down to the ground, but that's just because you're depressed and you think they wouldn't want to talk to me. Um, so it's easy to think that you're not that popular. And then the best thing about the nomination was the amount of people who said, oh, I'm really happy for you. Oh, this is great! I'm really happy for you. Well done. Um, it's about uh, all those kind of things, you know. Just, just really nice, and it really humbles you. It makes you, you think. Oh, I didn't realise that people did. You know, it's the biggest like shame me. that that can't happen to everyone, yeah, yeah, regardless yeah. of the nomination. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it does. It refreshes you. It it, it it lifts you back up, and it gives you confidence because you think. Oh, people people do like what I do. People do respect me. People do. Oh, I didn't realise that. I thought I was kind of forgotten. I thought I was kind of yeah. on my way down. Do you know what I mean? Um, and that, that was the best thing about it, really. Just spending a day, you know, liking little messages on Twitter, answering little Facebook messages, thanks very much, all that. And um, You never get tired of that. You never get tired of people coming up and... Congratulating you, get tired of thanking people for it. It's just great. 
uh, and then obviously you know beyond the the uh, the artistic side it opens doors career wise and that's that's the best thing about it is that suddenly your profile goes from nothing to massive um, and and the Soho Theatre thing kicks off and then hopefully that leads to something else and it's just nice I think the uh, another thing with the depression like I said it's, it's easy to turn it on and off and I think one of the things that keeps you happy uh, is to be busy and to work and that's all I want that's all if, if I get anything from this nomination um, it's just that I want to work I love working I'm a performer and I don't restrict myself in what kind of performance I do I'll do I'll, I'll have got anything and I think you should as a performer you should have as many strings to your bow as you can because I think one lends itself to another I think if you're a good stand-up it makes you a better actor if you're a good actor it makes you a better stand-up Um I'd love to do musical theatre. How much fun would it be? I mean, a show like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, you know, run around with some mad hat on. And, <laughs> it, and, and again, it's just getting back to that childish... If you said to a kid, right, do you want me in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Yes. So why would I even think twice about something like that? It's, it's, it's just all different ways to have fun. And the more work, the more I'm working, the more I'm having fun. And the more I'm having fun, the less depressed I am, so... Uh, yeah, I just want to work. Thanks, man. So that was Seymour. Thank you so much to Seymour for coming on the show. Do check out his stuff at Edinburgh this year in, in the whatever he's near you. Have a Google of him. I'm never very good at collating the details of everyone's websites and so on, but, y- you know, you know where the internet is. Um, and uh, find out more about Seymour. Go and see him. One of the most... I, I say this to people very often, but not often on the show... One of the most satisfying aspects of doing this podcast is when comics who've been on the show come up to me at Edinburgh or at whenever and say, oh, I'm getting loads of people in from the podcast, thanks. That is hugely satisfying to me. So do seek out people if you're enjoying them here. Um, Seymour will be up there, I'm sure. Um, and thank you, of course, to Johnny Mouncer, uh, who is a temporary stand-in editing and uploading chief. Thank you to James Hingley for his constantly tireless uh, web efforts on my behalf. And thank you to Tom DL for some uh, some pro tips and the arcane business of mailing lists. Those are all, uh, you know, irons in the fire. Irons in the fire. But as the show, as my own Edinburgh show gets more and more ready, we get a little bit closer to me revealing some of these exciting things I've been talking about. Go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop and you can buy Extra Life for three quid, which I think is, frankly, a bargain. It's a good show, man. It's a good show, and you could tell it's a, I can tell it's a good show because there are bits of it I've forgotten because I've not performed it for a long time, and listening back to it in the edit, it was making me laugh. So <laughs> if, if the bit of advice I tend to give people is you've got to stick with what makes you laugh, then it's very... Uh, I mean, is there anything more self-indulgent? But I think it's quite positive to think that you can hear one can hear one's own work that one can't remember and go ha, 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 that's a great joke so i don't know i mean you know there's there's the facebook echo chamber and then there's this me sitting in my living room recording <laughs> a message into a microphone on my own telling people some of whom bless you some of whom i may never meet how much I enjoyed listening to myself in a context i'd forgotten jesus it's like being in a time capsule or it's, it's like being in the space library at the end of Interstellar. Um, that concludes the podcast. How can it not? 
tweet me at ComComPod. Recommend the show to people. You know, do that thing. Chuck some reviews at it on iTunes if you like, or grab people's phones out of their hands, they grab their devices, and uh, subscribe to the show on their behalf with their permission. Uh, or, or chuck me your donations, or buy things, and get in touch with me, and let me know you're out there. I've got, I've only got very few episodes still left in the can now. Uh, currently, I've got Joe Lysett. That'll be next week's is Joe Lysett. Great episode, live live show, really good fun. Uh, we've got a, a Russell Howard and a Jinx Monsoon, both of which I've really, really enjoyed. And uh, I'm meeting Liam Williams next week. So brilliant, brilliant uh, kind of, what is it, anti-lad, sad lad. Uh, uh, Pilsner socialist Liam Williams such a poet such a, an incredible writer a very very funny man so join the, the ComCom Facebook group uh, and uh, you can suggest some questions for Liam so that is that and that concludes the podcast for now so this is the waffle for anyone uh, sticking around for it sorry not to have uh, produced one last week um, two things to talk to you about. Uh, t-shirts, which I'll cover very briefly. There's not uh, by way of advertising. The the ComCom group has had some lovely people have have sent in their designs. People have posted on the ComCom Facebook group their designs for t-shirts. I asked them to, and they did. And um, uh, some of them are really they're, they're all really good natured, and some of them display all of them display various degrees of skill. And I'm really grateful to everyone for sending those in. Um, I suppose I just feel like we need to see a lot of them in order that I can kind of I can earmark my favourite three, and then I'll put those on a put those to a vote on the Facebook group. There's quite a lot of money involved and time and effort in in producing and printing and selling t-shirts. I know a couple of people have been in touch with me in the past about one of those dropship things where they take it all off your hands, but frankly the markup isn't big enough for me for that to be worth you know managing as a, as a project. I, you know, it, it's it's all about trying to get the the podcast to turn a profit without having to go cap in hand to Mr. and Mrs. insert soft drink here. Um so uh, so anyway, my point is that I uh, I really appreciate everyone sending these things. It's been a bit of fan art. Someone drew my face, which is just wonderful. Thank you. If there's any more of that sort of thing, that's great. But you see my problem. Like, although it's a great... Someone did a, a brilliant... Uh, Lise Richardson, I think was her name. She did a, uh, a, a, did a beautifully drawn faff and waffle. You can join the Facebook group and see this. Uh, it says faff and waffle in very nice sort of uh, calligraphy. And then uh, a sort of painting, basically, a digital painting, I think, of my face. Which is great, but can I put my face on a t-shirt? I don't think people want to buy my face and wear it around. The, the original Warwick Johnson Cadwell design had my face on it, and I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And then it spectacularly lost all of the <laughs> the Facebook um, votes that I set up. So, yeah, I think what I want is a catchphrase from the show, and people have been suggesting one. James Cook, a very funny comedian, waggishly suggested, so this is a t-shirt, which I like, but I don't know... I mean, I like it, but my, my issue with that is a ComCom fan seeing that wouldn't necessarily know that it referred to ComCom. It's got to be more unique. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> You're all thinking, well, then make the content more unique, Stuart. And rightly so. Um, so, I think just something like a password, a little code phrase, uh, and then and then I will let slip the, the dogs of design. Someone did the uh, st- straight out of Compton, but straight out of ComCom. I mean, again, I, I like that, but I, I think as a... As, a, as an existing logo, it sort of suggests that the show has got something to do with rap, which I don't think it has. A band of man's not been on it for a while. Um, so, uh, you know, again, a great idea. My point is, 
feel I'm really enjoying seeing uh, all of your efforts. I just would hate to think anyone was putting a lot of effort into something that then I would look at and go, well, it's great, but I can't use it for this reason I haven't mentioned before. So, um, yeah, please keep chucking those in if you like. But what I really wanted to talk about was this. I got a... Uh, I got a... not exactly a request. It's certainly not... How can I how can I approach this subject? My old school, which, as you can probably guess from my career and personality, I did not enjoy. Uh, I did not enjoy my time there. And... Um, I they they got in touch with me. They there's like their sort of old alumni uh, magazine got in touch with me and said, uh, "Oh, we've just one of your former teachers sent us these clippings of your success on tour and the success of your podcast and stuff." And we wondered if we could just include a reference to it in the latest alumni magazine, and that's fine. But the issue I had was that. Um, I never wanted anything to do with it. And I, once I left, God, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I don't know if I've spoken about this before, but I certainly have, it wasn't hell. And I think, I, I think the hellish bits of it were probably of my own design, really. I think looking back, knowing that I had sort of friends who, a few friends who went there, uh, one or two of whom I'm still in touch with, and they didn't find it as awful as I did kind of makes me go maybe this was a thing I was doing to myself um and and so I I don't know I'm trying to be specific and I'm trying to be non-specific at the same time basically I was so happy to leave there and I wanted no more to do with it for the rest of my life I probably spent the next 10 years you know pre-busking circus school all that kind of stuff and eventually that mindset of going into comedy I probably did that on the basis of, like, for a good 10 years, almost every life decision, part of me was thinking, what would School X want me uh, to do? I'll do the opposite, <laughs> you know? And it's not like they've invited me back to do a talk or anything. I mean, that they had once or twice, and I've, I've always turned them down. It's just, they just wanted to include in the magazine, hey, this guy, you know, old people, he's, he's up to this. What concerned me was not that it happened. Of course, something like that will happen every so often. But, um even to hitmen in that tremendous film. But what concerned me was that so conditioned am I by them to seek the approval of my masters that part of me was sort of proud. And I, that was an odd feeling. I don't want to be... I don't want to be sort of proud of it. I felt like I was simpering. I felt like I was, oh, look, they've got in touch with me. Well, I, I would like I would like everyone to know. Why would you like everyone to know, Stu? No one cares. And... You know, I certainly, I certainly wouldn't want anyone to make a decision about where they sent their child based on, oh, look, well, this is where Stuart. Of course, that, that situation is never going to crop up. But I'm particularly sensitive at the moment. Something I can't talk about yet, but perhaps I'll talk about in a future episode, has happened recently, which has really, really rocked me and really made me very sensitive about how I engage with the real world I'll leave it there I don't want to be I'm not going to be teasing but um, there's there's a thing I, might, I may talk to you about in a future episode um, so I'm really sensitive about it so of course my mind races ahead and goes oh god what if someone goes to that sends their child to that school they have a, as bad a time as I do and then years down the line they track me down and go well my dad sent me there because he said you went of course that would never happen but the point is just what is that dynamic of me going well I I, I I simultaneously couldn't wait to be away and ha are happy never to think of it again. And whenever I, I mean, it comes up in therapy a lot, believe you me. 
Um, so I, occasionally we touch on it. But I am happy to be rid of it forever. And at the same time, the idea that they, hey, you've done so well now that we we might like to show off about you, makes me kind of go, oh, oh really, guys? Thanks. Thanks so much. God, I, I, I was, oh, oof. So what I've done is basically I put it on Facebook and I got a roughly even split between people going, fuck them, and people going, no, come on, it could be positive. And, you know, and, and as someone sensibly pointed out, we're talking about over 20 years ago now. So it's like I haven't been there for 22 years. Presumably every single one of the teachers has changed. Um, the culture may be completely different. You know, it's it's uh, you can't cross the same river twice. One of those sorts of situations. But I... Um, I, I joined halfway through the second year, so I when I was a kid. So uh, I got moved from one school to another, and and when I arrived at this school, everyone already had settled in, and they knew all the uh, all the games, these weird sports and weird uniforms and weird way of you know having a pupil number being called by your surname. Everyone had already acclimatized to that, and I hadn't and never did, and I just had a. I've really not a great time. So the idea that the legacy of that experience might still remain in my in my DNA somehow is um that's not how DNA works, you're quite right. <laughs> but the legacy of it you know, how can you never escape? Can you never escape? Even even now I go, Oh yeah, actually all those decisions I made, the reason I became a comic, all the rest of it. I mean I've I've sort of said this in the past, I'm sure, that that sometimes I feel like comedy is a thing I'm doing in order to prove something to the kids I used to go to school with who literally cannot remember me. <laughs> you know, what a what a ludicrous thing. How many of these incidents and experiences shape us, shape me? And they end up being the the path through which the path down which you go for the rest of your life. How how many people out there in their sixties or seventies, let's say artistic creative people, how many people are still doing that in order to prove something to people who no longer exist and who quite possibly at the time didn't even mean what they were perceived to mean? Like you get that information. I remember my my friend, uh, who, my friend Rob, who was an actor. I've not worked with him for years and years. He's a, a good deal older than me, and he retrained for the theatre because he heard someone say, "And then I retrained for the theatre." And he went, "Yes, that sounds exciting. I'm going to retrain for the theatre." And he became an actor. And then years later, he told me it's a very funny story. Years later, he found out that they meant the operating theatre. So he, he did. He made this massive life change based on a mishearing. And uh, I just wonder if you can do that with a mishearing, then, then what what code is is hard coded into you by years and years and years of a particular environment? Yeah, I mean it's not you know I'm happy now, man. It's all good. Um, so I hope that doesn't sort of come across as too bleak. Listen, you can possibly hear the bootross squeaking away upstairs, so he's not on his own. But uh, I'm going to go and help attend to him. So that was the waffle for today. I mean, did you have an experience like that? You can get on the Facebook group and talk about it if you like, or it's sort of better that we discuss it as a team, I think, because uh, I've just got too many emails. But, um, yeah, how many of us are still labouring under, uh, like, Robocop-style prime directives, you know, that were that simply don't exist anymore? Why are we even following them? That's the thought for today. <laughs> it was a bit of thought for today, wasn't it? That'll do me. And thanks again to Seymour. Thanks for listening. Next week... 
uh, Joe Lycett. Mwah! Brilliant. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.